Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery. We are all about trying to help you create better products that your customers actually love, you and your teams doing that. And this episode is sponsored by the Rapid Product Master Experience. That's the RPM Experience. It is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers and everyone else involved in product to increase their performance. It's not training, it's actually an experience. Go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM to see how it can help you too. Today, we're talking about how product leaders use legal resources or could use them better. When and why should product VPs and CPOs and other senior product roles involve legal resources? And while that question is directed to those executive team members, I expect product managers will also discover how legal resources can be wisely leveraged in your work as well, how they fit into our product teams and our work we do. Joining us is Ryan Lewenden, and he's a partner at a law firm helping startup companies and other companies in many different areas. And Ryan, I'm not going to do justice to pronouncing the law firm's name correctly. Can you do that for us? Yeah, of course, Chad. I'm, I'm really pumped to be here. So so my law firm's name is Giannuzzi Lewenden. We are based in New York and LA. We've, we are a boutique firm that solely focuses on fast-growing, disruptive consumer products companies. So anything you put in or on your body, we work with. Excellent. Many of the people listening have aspirations that they haven't been involved in already of maybe doing their own thing, of being a founder, of contributing to a startup and like. And you've helped a lot of brands have really successful exits with acquisitions by companies that we all know, right? Coke, General Mills, Boulder Brands, Bacardi, and more. So lots of good experience there to share with us. Looking forward to that as well. And listeners, before we get into the discussion, I just want to remind you, we do create a written summary of all the details that we talk about, including a one-page action guide to help you immediately put into action the key takeaways that Ryan's going to share with us. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 388. Ryan, thanks for being here with us. Chad, thanks so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here. So looking at the the law firm a little bit, just want to get a context for what your focus is. We have talked a few times in previous episodes about intellectual property. I'm sure the firm's involved in that. Give us a better understanding of what kind of law you practice. The type of law I practice is it's it's an inch wide and mile deep in terms of the subject matter, right? In terms of the focus of consumer goods, but it's pretty broad in terms of the legal practice, right? So I'd say that well, first, let, let me start off by telling you how we got here, and that'll sort of inform what we do, right? My my partner, Nick, and I, we ended up being the first lawyers for vitamin water. We did everything for vitamin water from when it was, you know, just Darius Baikoff sitting in a room with an idea all the way until we sold it to Coke in 2007 for $4.7 billion. Along the way, we did sort of everything they needed from a corporate legal standpoint, every round of financing through the M&A. We did every distributor agreement, every broker agreement, every employee incentive plan, every commercial lease, every truck wrap agreement, every celebrity partnership. That sounds like working in a startup, right? You, 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 do everything, <laughs> yeah. you wear every role right. and do everything that is needed. Everything that was needed. And, you know, until about 2006, they got, they actually got a general counsel in for those last two years. And we worked, then we worked with the general counsel, Fighterman Water, through the sale to Coke. And then actually probably about for maybe four or five years after the sale, we still stayed on as sort of corporate counsel in that capacity. From there, we realized that there was a big white space for people that wanted to help these disruptive brands and founders. Early 2000s, there wasn't sort of a ton of people that were interested in doing that. 
And, you know, we not only realized we had this great playbook for how to build a disruptive business and brand, and we had a real aptitude for working with disruptive companies and an affinity for working with the underdogs, right? Like we, we, we consider ourselves disruptors in the legal industry, but we liked working with the disruptors in the CPG industry. So today, you know, Nick and I worked on that. We started a firm. We've grown it. We've got about 30 lawyers today. We've got two offices in New York in LA. I'm a New York and a California lawyer. I spend, I split my time between the two off. And there's over a thousand companies we work with in CPG and, and they run the gamut in terms of size, you know, from, from the body armors of the world to the vital proteins of the world, bumblebee tunas of the world, Oatly, um, fever tree, you know, companies that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, billions of dollars in revenue and and companies that might have a, a big in-house counsel presence or, or might not, all the way down to companies that are sort of real, true startups or, or true startup ideas, right? A single person with an idea. We work with you sort of the full life cycle. And what we do kind of falls into four ver. The first is financing and M&A. You know, I think we, as a law firm, we probably do just about as much of that as anybody else in CPG. I think we you know, we sell about, we average about 10 to 20 businesses a year. We average about $2 billion in sort of exit value over the past couple of years. Last year was a blip because, you know, we helped sell body armor to Coke for $8 billion, which, you know, was the biggest acquisition Coke's done and it's a 180 year history. So wow. I think last year we were north of $10 billion in exit value. And then we do about 100, 200 rounds of financing a year, which, you know, that averages out to be about a billion, a billion five in invested capital over the past couple of years. So, so we do a lot, a lot of those types of transactions, anything. And by the way, those fundraisers run the gamut from like hundred million dollar rounds of financing to million dollar rounds of financing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of experience and a lot of sort of downstream vision in terms of what companies need to do when they're raising capital at different stages of the game and and what they what they should and shouldn't do when they're negotiating with investors to set themselves up for sort of ultimate long-term success in terms of an exit. So so that's the first vertical. The second vertical is like, you know, you raise your money, you got to spend the money to implement your plan, right? So we help you spend your money and Basically everything you need from a contractual stamp standpoint to implement your plan, we help you do whether that's building out sort of supply chain, right? Whether it's building out your marketing, uh, your marketing programs, whether it's negotiating with third parties for sponsorships or co-branded products or JVs or celebrity partnerships, whether it's building out sort of your human capital via sort of, you know, employment agreements and non-disclosures and non-competes or employee incentive plans and employee retention plans, all that type of stuff to sort of build out your team and keep your team motivated and driving towards the right direction to to, you know, just the, the more simpler stuff like the office leases or the retail leases or the truck leases and, and putting those together. And, and everything we do at Genuzi Luendon in terms of that sort of more day-to-day -day or plan implementation type of work, you know, we do with sort of two things in mind, right? One is how do you solve the problem directly in front of you, right? Like how do I get this manufacturer to sign me up? Right. How do I get this? How do I get this, this celebrity to come in and partner with my product? Right. But, and we help you solve that. But we also help you do something else, which is solve the problem down the line. And, you know, the, our sort of experience and which I think is quite honestly one of the unique, most unique experiences 
from a legal perspective, our experiences of taking a product and a brand when it's very early on and helping it grow over five, seven, 10 year period, helping it grow all the way through an exit. We help you solve the problems in front of you. How do I structure this supply relationship? How do I structure my deals with my employees? How do I structure this celebrity co-brand so that these things are an asset to me, not a detriment, an asset to me when a sophisticated investor or a purchaser of the company comes and looks at it. And we have that experience and that checklist and right. that, and circling that knowledge just from doing that, you know, over and over and over again through, you know, 15 years. And Brian, it's because of that experience that I wanted to talk about. How does, you know, start helping to think, help our product leaders think about how to engage legal services better. And specifically, the you know, reason why I uh, reached out to have this conversation with you because of that great experience that you bring so much of the picture of helping us with the problems of actually getting a new product into the marketplace, whether that might involve internal resources and using them better or M&A, if we have to build out supply chain and the like. Product leaders have experience with uh, having to build some of these things out. When I've d- gone into organizations and have done innovation assessments for them, sometimes I uncover barriers that are in place in the organization, right? And then when I talk to the VPs about, well, well, you know, give me an example of something that you know, is a great innovation that has happened here in the last couple of years. Usually there's a theme associated with that that goes something like, well, we didn't tell anyone that we were working on this until it was too big for anyone to stop it because there's these barriers in the organization that would have stopped it. And those are risk management barriers uh, often, and legal is a part of that, right? And I've had product VPs respond before, you know, legal's job in our organization is to say no. So I tend not, not to talk, which feels like a big waste. The things that you just went through that you have helped companies with sound like really valuable resources to bring to the table. And instead, how can we work with legal so they can help us do something new and say yes in a way that helps us and be part of the you know the solution and not just say no. I kind of want to frame that and go down that path and talk about you know for uh, large organizations that have internal resources, how can we do a better job engaging them? And also even they use you know like in your examples they use external resources for specific things. And smaller organizations probably are just using external resources. And you might have some examples and stories along the way, but let's start there. How can we do a better job engaging legal resources to help us create a new product? I love that you brought that up. And, you know, I will say lawyers do get a decent rap for, you know, being no people, right? They're, they're, they're the person or the, or the person in the role who stifles innovation or creativity or progress. And look, where I sit with, and I work with over a thousand companies in CPG, where I sit with a lot of them that don't have in-house counsel, I sit as sort of the outside in-house counsel. And with a lot of others, I, I, I sit within external counsel working with the in-house counsel. So, so I've got a lot of experience there. Let's talk about how to work with in-house counsel first. You know, the thing about your in-house counsel is you can't choose them. They're they're probably given to you and there's nothing you can do about that. First of all, I I look at a good in-house counsel as a translator, right? The great in-house counsel is a translator between the C-suite executives and the external legal counsel. There's someone who usually can speak the language of business and speak the language of law. So when you're dealing with an in-house counsel, first approach them 
as a translator, right? They are going to, they're going to put whatever you put forth to them through the external counsel and how that's presented to external counsel and how that's discussed with them is going to have a big impact on whether you get a, a rubber stamp no or you get someone to dig into an issue and work with it. Um, the in, the in-house counsel is is sort of the organizer organizer and the boss of the external counsel. So if you can get the in-house counsel on board for what you what you're trying to do, you're going to have a much higher chance of success on getting it sort of stamped off in terms of your chain of command. So how do you do that? Well, first of all, you want to establish trust. You want to establish trust with your counterparty. So hiding from them or hiding parts of the story or hiding the ball from them is probably not going to get you to where you want to go. Lawyers are taught to sort of suss out situations, right? They're taught to to look for what's not being said or what's not being thought of or what's not being where the where the where the attention is not being given. They're they're taught to look around those edges. So when you present the prop, when you present the item, be forthcoming. Be, be, you know, give the full sort of disclosure, give the full issues and items, give the reason that you're, that you're doing this, give, give the motivation for doing it and what you're hoping to achieve. And quite frankly, what will help you is if you can think through the, the negative sides, right? First, Hey, you know what? This issue, you know, it, it might be problematic because of this, but the reason we can deal with it is X, Y, or Z, right? If you, if you do that and present it to your in-house counsel, Hey, this is the idea. This is all the items around it. These are the potent, these are the upsides, right? Business folks are meant to focus on the upsides and the, and the, and the winning scenario. And, and, and if everything goes great, this is why it's going to be awesome for us. Lawyers are taught to look at the downsides and the worst cases, right? So if you can come in with a proposal that does both, right? Looks at the upside, acknowledges the downside and says, here are some mitigators on the downside that I've come up with. Now you've done a lot of the in-house counsel's job, right? You've taken out, you've taken out part of their assessment. Now all you've done for them to do for the rest of it is to translate that to the outside external counsels, right? And to help the external counsel go back to the C-suite executives and get a sign off. Transparency, full disclosure to them, and then a, and then a thought process on what are the benefits? What are the detriments? How do we negate? How do we minimize the detriments? And having a couple beers with the in-house counsel on, on the off hours probably wouldn't hurt either. <laughs> it's just like anything we do in a product role, those cross-functional relationships that we have are so very important for us being successful, right? The influence that we gain over others to be able to push an idea forward is critical. Having that influence with our legal resources is important too. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, Product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. 
One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. Can you give us a little bit more information about this uh, relationship between internal uh, counsel in-house and external? At what point in a project, right? So if you're in the role of our internal counsel, I come to you. I, I do a good job of putting together my proposal. We're thinking about this sort of project. Here's some of the risks I see. Here's how I think we might be able to mitigate them. Here's the potential, why this is a good thing for us to go after. I already, I might be able to tell you, right? Right. I already know that this executive is going to have trouble with this sort of issue over here, but I think we have really good support over here. And try to give you this full picture. At what point are they likely to engage external counsel as we go through this project and why? I, I, I always say, look, a great in-house counsel does almost no legal work. They're just a, they're just a conduit for the company and the external counsel, right? There's a couple reasons why that's the case. One, an in-house counsel usually has a job at a company because there's lots and lots and lots of legal issues to address and they shouldn't be addressing them all themselves, right? But but the other side of things is that there's a, a professional liability and a professional coverage that a company gets from using external counsel to get advice, right? So even if a in-house counsel has the time and the competency and the bandwidth to oversee something like the purchase of a, of a, of a product or the purchase of a business, they're going to use external counsel to do that anyways. One, to cover themselves, right? From a liability standpoint, but two, to cover the business's liability, right? Using external counsel shows that the internal counsel used the proper amount of diligence and care in going through that process. So any, almost anything material at a company, the external counsel is going to be looped in there. And, and look, when you're looking at external counsel, right? So you're in, you're in house counsel. You can't choose theoretically your external counsel. You can choose. So when you're looking to get uh, a concept or an idea, that's disruptive or innovative or game changing or just outside the box. When you're trying to get that passed and you're trying to get that approved and you're trying to get it analyzed for sort of internal controls, picking the external counsel who's going to do that can be extremely important, right? It's going to depend on a lot of different things. One, it's going to depend on, are you talking to a subject matter expert in what you're doing, right? Does that counsel who you're speaking to have contextual basis for what you're doing or not? Are they domain experts? Yes, absolutely, right? I mean, you know, like law is not like every other degree. You don't really specialize in terms of law, right? Like you don't come out with a degree, a law degree in corporate law or trust in estates or litigation. There's no specialties, right? All lawyers come out of law school with like a general degree. And then you become, you become your, you, you garner your experience in what you do, right? Like you would, if you're selling or buying a company, you definitely want to use me. If you need to go to court 
You absolutely don't. I would have no idea what I'm doing in a courtroom. It's just not what I do, right? So when you're speaking to external counsel on a, on a, on a project that might be outside the box or unique, the first thing you want to do is you want to find someone who, who has some contextual basis and who isn't starting from scratch, right? Lawyers are typically risk averse. If you are interfacing with someone who does not have a, a great grasp on the industry or the idea that you're putting forward, you're probably going to get a pretty quick no, right? Because the fact is that it's always easy to say that there is risk because there always is risk, right? It's much harder to understand the dynamics and the nuances and the particularities of a certain situation and to say, well, you know, there's always the chance of risk, but here, here, or here, those risks can be lessened. And you only develop that through having a contextual understanding of the subject matter industry that you're in. Okay. You know, the other things you want to look for are, are you dealing with someone who's interested and engaged on your project? You know, do they usually operate in the area that you're in? Is the firm that you're speaking interested in the types of matters or clients that you're working with? Or are they interested generally in something that's smaller or bigger than you're working with? All those types of things, right-sizing the fit in terms of your experience with outside counsel is going to have a drastic difference in terms of the answers you're going to get, right? You could probably go to four or five different firms and lawyers and get four or five different answers to the same question. So right-sizing that fit and that experience, I think, is the primary, primary thing you can do in terms of legal to get to where you want to go. Excellent. So some good insights there about working with the in-house counsel, preparing that full rounded picture and the external counsel, knowing what to expect from them and picking the right counsel to help with domain experience and expecting that they might come back to say no. So that's why that's a really important question for us. So a specific example, and you might have one that you want to offer, right? I'm thinking of maybe we're going down the path of creating uh, what we believe might be disruptive to our industry and we're looking at options for building that out ourselves and maybe uh, an acquisition that we could do instead to help with some speed here. And we come across some companies that might help with the speed aspect that could be possible acquisitions for us. And at that point, it certainly makes sense to involve legal to be discussing. This is on our radar or something that we might want to be doing soon. You know, for, for that kind of scenario where we're looking at that this buy versus build thing and we've decided maybe the acquisition is the right path to go down, what should we be bringing to uh, to our counsel to help us think through this? Sure. When you're looking at buy versus build and you're focusing on build, there's a couple different things to think about, right? What's the competitive moat to that, to that industry or to that product, right? Why is this particular company or brand or product situated in a, in a manner that paying for it outright outweighs the benefit of internally developing it, right? What are we, you know, distilling down what you're really getting from the purchase of that product or company is going to help inform that analysis, right? In consumer goods, there's a number of different assets you're buying, but generally it's the brand right? So it's the trade dress and the trademark. It's the sort of customer list and customer affinity to that brand. 
And then it's, you know, the IP associated with it, right? It's your trademarks, it's your trade dress, it's your trade secrets, and it's your patents and sort of other IP. And, and for every purchase, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes you're just buying an opportunity or you're buying sort of a quickness or an ease to market, right? <laughs> Instead of necessarily buying IP. And all those things differently inform the structure and the timing and also sort of the amount that you should be willing to pay for one of those types of companies. Okay. Yeah. Good things to think through. As we're talking about this, I keep revisiting something you said earlier in my head here, which is the networking aspect, you know, build, build the relationship. I have a gut feeling that there's some people listening that going, you know, I'm not going to talk to legal until I absolutely have to. But it feels like, you know, when you were describing your experience with vitamin water before and other work that you've done, tremendous resources there to consider options, right? To, if we need to manufacture like, oh, hey, our Legal counsel, certainly our external legal counsel, probably has relationships in place that could speed things for us. They probably have some expertise in putting together supply chain relationships before and some things that we can lean on uh, that would be helpful. And so there seems to be some advantages here in, in engaging those resources sooner than later. To kind of wrap up, I, I want to revisit that about, well, how can we build that relationship with our legal counsel in a way that helps us to gauge a little bit how we approach them, how we work with them, maybe get over some fears of, about engaging them in the first place or too early, right? Well, when when should we be bringing in these these resources? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, look I mean, I, I'm in the situation all the time, right? <laughs> um, I'm getting something delivered to me that, that they want a legal sign off on. And you can sort of tell on the other side that there's nerves there about it that they want to get it signed off on. They want to get it done. They're concerned about it getting squashed. And, and you know, you, you can tell maybe you're not getting the full story or you're getting it at the last moment. Look, lawyers are risk averse. If you give it to them at the last moment, it's going to make it harder for them to analyze it, not easier. Giving, look, a heads up, coming in earlier. Hey, just so you know, nothing to do on this now. I got something I'm working on. It's this, this, this. I'm going to bring it to you when it's fully formed. And uh, I would love for you to do, do a deep dive on this with you and let's go through it together, right? Because the lawyer is always going to do their own assessment. They're always going to feel they need to. And again, look, building trust with that in-house or external counsel, if you're the project manager or the project leader, is super important, right? If they say, hey, this is coming to me from this person. I know them. I know their, I, I understand them. I know what their motivations are. I know where they're mm -hmm. coming. Right. I know what their angle is. All those things, like if they feel they understand you, that's going to make them more calm. It's going to make it easier for them to try to figure out they have a full grasp of what's happening. And it's definitely going to get you, put you in a position where that analysis and that outcome can be done a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently. And as I said, like offering to have a, you know, tell them about it over a couple of beers after, after work. Lawyers have stressful jobs. Lots of them love right. to drink. So most people will take you up on that, but, but giving them you know, the download on that will, will get you, it's going to get you to yes a lot quicker and a lot easier. Yeah, definitely. T take your counsel out for a drink and, and talk, talk over that instead of at the office. That certainly does help. So, okay. Th this has been very helpful uh, information. The, uh, we have resources in organizations to help us. And as I kind of framed this earlier, the, the expectation that legal there is there just to say no. So why bother involving them? I think we're missing out on opportunities. And what we just talked about with giving them a heads up about, you know, here's what we're 
thinking about now. It's not fully fleshed out yet, but I'll come back when we have more information. Build that relationship with them. Don't blindside them. They have relationships and experiences to really be helpful. As listeners know, we love an innovation quote. What did you bring for us and what does that mean to you? It's Thomas Edison quote. It's simple. It says, there's a way to do it better. Find it. And, you know, that's something that quite honestly in my life, in my, in my career, in my practice, I think has guided me. I knew that, you know, the, the type of law I practice did not really exist before I started doing it. There weren't people helping sort of these fast growing disruptive consumer brands, focusing on it, focusing on the corporate aspect, focusing on the MAA aspect. And I knew when I was looking at sort of the legal profession and what the options were, I didn't love them. I didn't love the, you know, the fungibility of lawyers. I didn't love the idea that it was very much so like an old person's profession. Like most lawyers you want, you want to have to have experience, right? So if you want to be a commercial real estate lawyer, you kind of got us, you wait till you're 70 or 80 to be the most experienced <laughs> person there. Cause, cause everybody does it. Right. And you know, I was looking at my options. I was like, there's gotta be a better way to, you know, to build a law career. Right. And I did it. I found something that people weren't focused on. I found something people weren't doing. I found something that people had a need for mm-hmm. and that to become a subject matter expert on was, you know, a 10 year path, not a 50, 60 year path. Right. So, you know, I love that quote and, and it's something that I would say, you know, anyone who's a project leader or a project manager or even a lawyer coming out of law school, check, question and challenge the way things are being done, even if it's the way everyone agrees that it should be done and find a better way to do it. That's a good continuous improvement perspective too, right? There's no matter what we're doing, there's likely a better way to do it. And when it matters, we should find it. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that with us. How can people find out more about the work you do, the work your law firm does, resources you have available for us? Well, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or Instagram just by my name, Ryan Lewenden. My my law firm's website, you can look us up. It's www.g lllaw.us, or you can shoot me an email. Email address is Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at uh, gllaw.us. I'm glad you chose a URL for the domain that is easy to know, um, because I struggled pronouncing the the law firm properly. So um, (laughs) yeah, uh, you're not the only one. (laughs) Give give us the name one more time. It's Genuzi Lewenden. Ryan, thank you so much for your time with us. I appreciate the insights and Everyone listening, just as a reminder, you'll find those written show notes of the details that Ryan shared, along with that one-page action guide of takeaways for you to put into action right now, the the key points, at productmasterynow.com slash 388. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.